This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Canada is basically on fire from the Pacific to the Atlantic in this June of 2023. The wildfire season starting so early in spring is brand new, driven by climate heat. Asia experienced temperatures too hot to work outside, and it lasted for weeks. Last week, Shanghai set its highest temperature record ever. Add in humidity, and countless millions in the east are hiding inside or living in hot misery or dying in it. Western media hardly reports this major event. The Caribbean is also rocket hot, with Puerto Rico enduring temperatures beyond human endurance. All this comes before El Nino, the great change in Pacific currents, leading to hotter years and even more fire weather. Yes, climate change is here, years early with a vengeance. We were warned. This week, we go back to two classic interviews that revealed the future of our age. These are the fundamentals. Radio EcoShock. Coming up, the fork in the road towards the unsustainable hothouse Earth or a human-stabilized planet where we have to monitor and keep track of the temperature and make it go right. We will hear one of my 2018 interviews with Professor Will Steffen. It is about one of the most important scientific papers in this century. And then we search for the tipping points that could force the climate into hothouse Earth. These are the planetary boundaries. You will hear top Swedish scientist Johan Rockström on Radio EcoShock as I recorded it in 2016. Let's get going. In last week's Radio EcoShock show, Professor Will Steffen told us, So, even when we know climate change is coming and it's going to be dangerous, can we really make a plan to survive the breakdown of society? I mean, isn't the point being that society breaks down and things don't work anymore? Yeah, I think the point is uh, we need to do everything we can to avoid that sort of scenario. Uh, and, and, And there's a lot of people are now saying time is running out rapidly to avoid that. And this is really, in a way, the fork in the road that we uh, envisaged in that 2018 paper on, on Earth system trajectories, that the, the fork in that pathway between stabilized Earth and hothouse Earth probably lies this decade, maybe in the first half of the decade. Certainly, I think by 2030, we, we will have put ourselves on one of the other pathways, and it will be difficult to shift. That's why it's extremely important now that people understand the seriousness of this risk and, and understand that the students are right. This is an emergency situation, and we actually do have to make the right choices over the next couple of years. To really understand where we are and where we are headed, I will read you a couple of key paragraphs from the 2018 paper, Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene, The authors, led by Will Steffen, say this of stabilized Earth. This analysis applies that even if the Paris Accord target of 1.5 degrees C to 2 degrees C rise in temperature is met, we cannot exclude the risk that a cascade of feedbacks could push the Earth system irreversibly into a hothouse Earth pathway. The challenge that humanity faces is to create a stabilized Earth pathway that steers the Earth system away from its current trajectory toward the threshold beyond which is hothouse Earth. The human-created stabilized Earth pathway leads to a basin of attraction that is not likely to exist in the Earth system's stability landscape without human stewardship to create and maintain it. 
Creating such a pathway and basin of attraction requires a fundamental change in the role of humans on the planet. This stewardship role requires deliberate and sustained action to become an integral, adaptive part of Earth's system dynamics, creating feedbacks that keep the system on a stabilized Earth pathway. They continue, if the world's societies want to avoid crossing a potential threshold that locks the Earth system into the hothouse Earth pathway, then it is critical they make deliberate decisions to avoid this risk and maintain the Earth system in Holocene-like conditions. This human-created pathway is what we call stabilized Earth, and that's where the Earth system is maintained in a state with the temperature rise no greater than 2 degrees C above pre-industrial, a super-Holocene state. Stabilized Earth could require deep cuts in greenhouse gas emissions, protection and enhancement of biosphere carbon sinks, efforts to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, possibly solar radiation management, and adaptation to unavoidable impacts of the warming already occurring. In essence, the stabilized Earth pathway could be conceptualized as a regime of the Earth system in which humanity plays an active planetary stewardship role. We emphasize that stabilized Earth is not an intrinsic state of the Earth system, but rather one in which humanity commits to a pathway of ongoing management of its relationship with the rest of the Earth system. That was a reading from the paper Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene as published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, August 14, 2018. Let's go to my interview with lead author Will Steffen about this overview of our plight. This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Planet Earth is hurtling towards a new, hotter state. But how hot? Are there landing spots that are safe enough for a human civilization? We get a big step towards answers with new science published by the National Academy on August 6th. The title is Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene. The paper is from a distinguished team of scientists led by Dr. Will Steffen. Will was educated in the American South and transplanted to Australia, where he led research institutes and advised governments. Currently, Dr. Stefan is an emeritus professor at the Australian National University and a counsellor with the Climate Council of Australia. He's also a senior fellow at the Stockholm Resilience Centre. Will Stefan, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you very much. Now, to begin, for the layperson, is there a difference between a tipping point, as popularized by Al Gore, well, 12 years ago, and the thresholds that you look for in this paper? No, they're pretty much the same thing. We, we use the term tipping element, which is actually the physical system which could, within it, have a tipping point or threshold. So uh, those uh, two terms are used pretty much synonymously. In our paper, what we're trying to say is that in addition to individual parts of the Earth having tipping points, example being the, the Arctic sea ice, or perhaps the Amazon rainforest, uh, we're talking about uh, a number of these things acting together. Well, I'd like to go through the four main questions you worked with in order, and they're understandable to all of us and go far beyond just scientific curiosity. These are things we need to know and that governments need to know. So question one, quote, is there a planetary threshold in the trajectory of the Earth system that, if crossed, could prevent stabilization 
in a range of intermediate temperature rises? That's a pretty scary question, isn't it? Could you explain it a bit? Yeah, look, I think the, the, the dominant framework for the climate change issue is that our emissions of greenhouse gases will be the dominant driver no matter how hot it gets. In other words, the more we emit, the hotter it gets. Once we stop emitting, the Earth is going to stay there. In other words, we could park it at 2 or 3 degrees and it'll stay there. We're saying that the Earth is not a simple system. It's a complex system. And a lot of complex systems have behavior which uh, looks at sharp transitions between a couple of well-defined states. So our argument is that there are a number of individual tipping elements that have their own thresholds in the Earth system, plus some other feedbacks which may not have thresholds but still accelerate climate change. These can act together like a stack of dominoes. When you start pushing one domino, it knocks another off and another off, and together that line of dominoes falling constitutes a planetary threshold. So we are um, hypothesizing with a fair bit of evidence that there exists a planetary threshold somewhere probably between one and a half and two degrees and, and four degrees, that if we go across that, the, the Earth system, it's going to move to a much hotter state out of our control. So that's, that's basically what that first question is designed to address. And in our paper, we say, yes, there is likely to be a planetary threshold. And you've already talked really about the second question, which is, if there is a threshold, where is it or maybe when is it? And uh, you've, you've touched on that. So question three, uh, quote, if a threshold is crossed, what are the implications, especially for the well-being of human societies? Okay, well, there are whole books written about possible impacts of a hotter world, but can you give us some clues? Yeah, well, one of the things you'd obviously see is, is an enormous increase uh, in extreme weather events. Uh, and we're already seeing some of this, but this would be extreme weather on steroids. It'd be fires, droughts, uh, extreme heat, big changes in rainfall, extreme rainfall events, uh, worse tropical cyclones or hurricanes in the northern hemisphere, and so on. That's an obvious one. But I think another one that's sort of a sleeper there that people don't think about so much is that we have designed and built our, our civilizations around reasonably stable patterns of uh, temperature and rainfall. For example, big agricultural zones, central USA is a good example, western Europe is a good example, uh, Indo-Gangetic Plain, northeast China. These together feed billions of people. And if we cross the threshold and rapidly go toward a hothouse earth state, all of those systems are going to be disrupted. And it's hard to predict exactly how they're going to be disrupted. So what, what this means is uh, just something as simple and basic as providing food for the human population is going to become a massive and difficult task. So that's a good example of, of what's coming our way. Another one is that sea level is going to uh, rise and continue to rise for centuries and centuries uh, as we go on to a hothouse earth trajectory. We're estimating somewhere between 20 and 40 meters of sea level rise could eventuate uh, way down the track. It takes a long time for the ice to melt. But you could get sea level rise rates as high as two meters a century. Uh, and that's a pretty high rate. Uh, that now comes into a human perspective in terms of uh, a very large amount of coastal infrastructure that then becomes vulnerable. And you can go on and on. It's, it's, it's not a very pretty picture when you actually start uh, looking at it in detail. Well, I'd like to leave until later the question about what human actions could save us from the worst of a hothouse world. It's important, but there's a couple things I'd like to get to first, including in the AR5, or the fifth assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that was finalized in 2014, and it talked about a medium confidence that a threshold for abrupt and irreversible climate change exists. 
Does your paper go beyond medium confidence that that threshold is there? Yeah, I, I think we've got much higher confidence than that because, as we say, all of these processes that would form a planetary threshold, we've seen how they've operated in the past, so they're real processes. Also, we have a fair bit of evidence that some of them, even at a one-degree temperature rise, are being destabilized. Arctic sea ice is a good example of that. Amazon forest is another example of that, and so on. And we see weakening of, of longer-term ocean and, and, and terrestrial carbon sinks. So this isn't fanciful stuff. These things are already starting to happen. So I think we could uh, reinforce what the IPCC said and say that with new knowledge, we could upgrade that probability to higher than medium. Now we've really got to do some work to try to pin down a little bit more precisely where that threshold might lie uh, in terms of temperature rise. But does this threshold idea compare with the planetary boundaries advanced by your co-author Johan Rockström and his team in Sweden? Very much so, because what we're saying is, and the planetary boundaries are a reasonably conservative approach, saying that if we want to be really certain or with a very high degree of probability that we're going to maintain a Holocene-like state of the Earth system, then we have to make sure we avoid these thresholds and these feedback processes. So we've set boundaries for nine processes. One of them is obviously CO2 in the atmosphere, but there are others like the amount of uh, important biomes, uh, forests you can lose, uh, and things like that. So the planetary boundaries approach is actually saying if you want to be really sure that you're going to avoid the sort of hothouse Earth trajectory we're painting in this paper, then you stay within the boundaries. Is the hothouse Earth pathway different from runaway climate change, as Dr. James Hansen once suggested was possible? It depends on what you mean by runaway. We never use the term because it's, it's something that, that we don't talk about in complex systems uh, theory or analysis. What we're saying is that there are other states of the Earth system which are actually stable. They don't run away, but they are much hotter than the one that uh, we've developed our civilizations in. And what we're saying is that one of those states, the hothouse earth one, could be accessible if we cross these thresholds. So you, we, we're uh, hypothesizing that if you cross that threshold, you get a period of very rapid climate change. But this isn't runaway. It's going to restabilize at a hotter state with much less ice at the poles, much higher sea levels, different rainfall patterns, and so on. And we, we've seen a state like that in the recent past, the, the so-called mid-Miocene, about 15 or 16 million years ago, uh, was just like that state, and, and the, the continents were about in the same configuration. So this sort of thing is plausible. So no, we don't use the term runaway. It's going to keep going on forever. But the Earth could shift to a much harder, much less hospitable, stable state. It worries me a bit that this paper calls for stewardship of the entire Earth's system, including the biosphere. Frankly, we've utterly failed at stewardship. The idea of humans running the biosphere is a bit frightening to me. Maybe we need to greatly decrease our numbers and impacts to allow the biosphere to self-regulate. What do you say? Well, that's a good point, and, and stewardship isn't management. They're two very different terms. Uh, in fact, stewardship, in, in, in my view of the word and, and, and its, its uh, proper meaning, is that we really manage ourselves to become good stewards, which is exactly what you say, allow natural processes to reestablish. In other words, we need to protect major biomes like the Amazon rainforest. We don't manage it. We just take our pressure off of it. So I think you're absolutely right on that. And uh, I think if you read the, um, the supplementary info, we, did, we had some limited space in the main text. We go into more detail about what stewardship actually entails. But we were very careful not to use the word management, but to use the word stewardship. 
The mainstream chatter is usually about technological fixes needed to keep the civilization, we hope, going more or less the way it is. But your paper goes beyond that, calling for, quote, behavioral changes, new governance arrangements, and transformed social values. Maybe that's more important than a technical fix. Your thoughts? Absolutely. And that's a point I think we made very clearly, so I'm glad you picked up on that. Technological fixes is more the same, and the more you look at them, the more they're taking the old cause-effect linear logic without considering that, that those actions are embedded in a complex system that may surprise you with how, how they react. So a transformed value system is, as you said earlier, we become uh, stewards of the, of, the, of the system, which means we actually manage ourselves to uh, take pressure off of the Earth system and allow it allow many of the natural processes and feedbacks to operate. They've uh, kept the place stable for about 12,000 years and allowed us to develop. Uh, and now we're really, really disrupting that. So you're absolutely right. I, I, and I think the other thing I'll just say quickly, we've had two decades of really understanding the climate change problem, and we've made virtually no progress at getting on top of it. So that just tells you, just from pure observation, that the present system is failing, failing really, really badly. So that's why we actually said... It's more than technology. It's more than fiddling a bit at the edges. Um, we actually have to really transform ourselves, our societies, and our value systems. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith, with my guest, Dr. Will Steffen. Will is known internationally in climate circles and beyond, and he's based in Australia, but he also works with the Stockholm Resilience Center. We're talking about a new paper that lays out possible futures for the world climate, and some are livable and others not so much. So, Will, figure three in the new paper is titled Global Map of Potential Tipping Cascades. What is a tipping cascade? Well, this is like the row of dominoes, where one of these individual processes that has a tipping point tips, and it changes the Earth system. It, it can melt ice and uncover more dark ocean or land which absorbs more sunlight heats the planet more or it can emit co2 or methane to the atmosphere or both which warm the earth further and as the earth warms further more of these tipping elements then become vulnerable they start to tip they increase the temperature further some of these elements actually operate by changing ocean circulation which moves heat through the ocean uh, from hemisphere to hemisphere so there are a number of connections that once you start tipping some of these elements they change the Earth system such that they tip other elements. And it's, uh, I think the best analogy is a, a, a sort of winding row of dominoes where you, where you start knocking the first couple over and it takes off. So that's what, it, what we call a tipping cascade. And this is the fundamental process underneath the fact that the planet as a whole may have a threshold. This is very interesting to me because, uh, in a way, I've been having an argument with Dr. Guy McPherson about tipping points, and he said that positive feedback loops can work on each other and, and make each other go stronger. And in a way, that's what your graphic shows. Uh, that's exactly what we're saying. Yep, that's, that's a good way of putting it. All right. And apparently, we can never go back. Have we already knocked out the cycle of glaciers known for the past few million years? Yes, I think there's good evidence that we will not go into the next glaciation. So we'll miss that. So uh, we'll miss a glaciation for about 100,000 years just with what we've already uh, done to the Earth system. Now, some people may argue that's a good thing, but in fact, that's only the beginning of what's, what's happening if we keep on our present trajectory. Uh, and that's what this paper is arguing, is that if we keep on the present trajectory, uh, we're going to go to a much, much hotter 
state-of-the-earth system. So that, of course, would eliminate glaciations for even longer than than 100,000 years, probably. What's our best hope for a stabilized Earth? That's a good question, and I think people in the humanities and social sciences may have a better answer than I do. All I would say is that we scientists, I think natural scientists, have to do a better job of articulating what the real risks are. And that's what this paper is intended to do. It's intended to be a wake-up call to say, we really need to reframe the risks of what we're doing to the planet's climate system and to the Earth system as a whole. I think humanities scholars and social science scholars would have some good ideas about how we actually do start getting a transformation of values, a reorganization of societies, and so on. That's a bit outside of my area of expertise, only to say that I think... Uh, We have enough evidence to say our present system isn't going to solve this problem, so we have to think and act at a much deeper level uh, to transform our societies. Well, I'm going to try and go a little deep here, and I can't explain it very well because I'm not a scientist, but I noticed that Dr. Joachim, or John Schellenhuber, is a co-author of your new paper, and in his 2011 speech at the Four Degrees or More conference in Australia, which I broadcast on Radio EcoShock, he said something that always made me wonder. Now, according to my blog notes about that speech, he said studies in physics show the temperature is unlikely to stay anywhere around the 7 degree C hotter mark. Simple calculations about the wave patterns of matter, he said, suggest the temperature would either rest around 5 degrees or keep migrating up to 10 degrees hotter, where there's another kind of natural plateau. And your paper also talks about possible resting points based on potential energy of the system. It's deep stuff, but can you comment? Yeah, look, ours ours roughly corresponds with John's 5 degrees. We're we're suggesting 4 and 5 degrees. John's a a really excellent theoretical physicist on top of everything else he knows about the Earth's system. So he's attacking it from one angle. We're looking at, for example, analogs in the past. So you can see that the Earth's system has existed for long periods of time, millions of years, in certain states, and then it transitions between these states. And one of these states we see in the recent past, of course, is one that's about four or five degrees uh, hotter than today, much less ice, quite different uh, climate system. And that, we think, could be accessible if we cross those thresholds or get that cascade going in the next couple of decades. And there has been a kind of monoculture among some climate scientists and climate activists where it's all about the carbon But humans have plenty of other impacts, like driving species extinct or cutting down forests or polluting with plastics, and some of those could change the biosphere that supports climate stability. So I was relieved your study went beyond simple carbon counting. Do we need more of that in science? Absolutely. Um, the, The paper does focus on the climate system. But again, in the supporting information, you'll see uh, a broader view of, of the Earth system as a whole. And I think a good way of looking at it is, is we have the Earth system is made up of two big interacting spheres at the highest level, the geosphere, which people focus on, the physical climate system, but also a biosphere. And in fact, carbon is a, is a beautiful link between the two. We think of carbon only as uh, something that warms the climate if you put too much of it in the atmosphere, but in fact, it's, it's the real currency of the biosphere itself. And uh, we're changing, in addition to burning fossil fuels, of course, we're changing the biosphere directly in a myriad ways. And and that, at the moment, is actually more important than the climate impacts on the biosphere. So, yes, it's extremely important that we take a a much more holistic, integrated view of the Earth system uh, and of human impacts on the Earth system. 
Well, as I said, here in British Columbia and all along the west coast of America, we've just gone through another terror summer of wildfires with massive smoke. And I wonder if the release of all that carbon from trees could affect the climate. Your paper says it's possible, yes? It it certainly is. In fact, one of the um, tipping elements or tipping processes we talk about are the vast boreal forests of Canada, Alaska, Siberia, Scandinavia. And yes, they can emit a lot of carbon to the atmosphere. So, uh, and we see it, the best data, in fact, is from Canada that we see long-term changes. That uh, the Canadian forests were basically a sink; they were a net absorber of carbon for much of the 20th century. But around about the 1970s or so, as, as temperatures started creeping up, we saw, particularly in Western Canada, an increase in spruce bark beetle attacks on on the trees, which weakened the trees. Uh, and made them more prone to disturbances. And, of course, with uh, with uh, ever-increasing temperature, fires became more probable. And so you had this, this double whammy of, of trees weakened by insect attacks and then fires sweeping through them. And the Canadian Forest Service has done an excellent job of actually tracking the carbon implications of all that uh, and uh, have found that over the 30 years post-1970, those forests have gone to being carbon neutral at best and sometimes even net emitters of carbon to the atmosphere. So that's already a big, a big effect on, on the global carbon cycle. And what would be the worst trajectory, this hothouse Earth? What would it be like if humans survived to see it? Okay, if, if, if you look at, uh, for example, Australia, much of Australia would be uninhabitable. You simply couldn't live there unless people were trucking in water and you lived in air conditions for 24-7. And you can do that around the Earth. Large areas of the tropics and subtropics become uninhabitable. Uh, as I said before, the, the world's big agricultural zones would have to change. They would, most of them would be damaged beyond repair by a rapidly ch- changing climate. Sea levels would just continuously rise. Uh, extreme weather events would be much, much worse than they are now. Uh, and John Schellenhuber himself, um, I think in that 2011 uh, lecture he gave at Melbourne, said it's not inconceivable that if we go to something like a hothouse Earth, we will have a civilization and population crash. Uh, and he suggested down to maybe a maximum ca- carrying capacity of 1 billion humans. We're about 7.5 now. So this is really a collapse scenario. And that's, that's what I think the worst case scenario is, in fact, a collapse scenario, uh, that the contemporary civilization we have today simply cannot exist in a hothouse Earth. Yes, and we know people have to slash greenhouse gas emissions to keep a livable world, and we've had experts on this show go further, saying we will need to reduce incoming sunlight with geoengineering. But your group adds a third way, namely, quote, enhancing or creating carbon sinks. Well, what can we do there? Well, obviously, the first thing we can do is protect and restore a lot of the the terrestrial sinks uh, that we talked about, Amazon, uh, other tropical forests, some temperate forests protect the boil. But also there's a huge carbon potential carbon sink in the ocean. Uh, the, the ocean's a big player in the carbon cycle. So protecting uh, coastal zones, uh, they absorb a lot of carbon. There have been proposals that, that macroalgae, big seaweed, can be enhanced, the growth of that, and that would uh, absorb a lot of car- carbon. Of course, you've got to get that then down deeper in the ocean to have it there for any length of time. So basically the way we, we look at it is about a quarter of the carbon that's up there today that's causing the problem actually originated from the biosphere. So getting that back into the biosphere and protecting it would actually be a big step forward. Of course, that's no substitute for fossil fuel, and that's the problem. Of a, lot, a lot of people think, well, we'll just grow trees. No, it's not a, sub- a substitute at all. All it does is, is restore some of the earlier emissions uh, from the biosphere. 
So if we want to have a habitable world, it sounds like we need to change everything, our consumption, our behavior, our attitudes. I've studied history. I have difficulty recalling such a huge revolution in such a short time frame, maybe at the start of World War II, maybe. Is it really still possible, Will Stefan, to steer Earth without going into that hellish hothouse ditch? Uh, good question. I think it's a big ask. Uh, I think we may have some chance to do it. Humans can move uh, extremely quickly. There are tipping points and radical changes, changes of state in human societies as well, often on the catastrophic side, but occasionally you see societies that reform themselves reasonably quickly. We did after World War II. That's probably the most recent example of where uh, older, more feudal systems around the world were, were torn down really by this succession of World War I, Great Depression, World War II. And there were quite different economic and governance systems that came out of that. So that was one example, but it took some catastrophic events to trigger that. Uh, this time, by the time we get to really catastrophic events, it may be too late uh, if we're right on our, on our uh, hothouses uh, and planetary threshold. So we have to have the foresight to transform ourselves before we actually get into a situation where the Earth system is out of control. Yes, foresight. That's what we need. So you have advised the Australian government in various ways, and lately Australian politics have gone further off the rails towards more coal development and climate denial. Meanwhile, as you say, farmers in New South Wales are allowed to shoot kangaroos because the drought is so awful. What now for Australia? Well, I think we're actually, if you look at Australia, uh, Australian society is somewhat in a complex systems view. We're getting much more uh, variability now in the system. Over the past 10 years, we've gone from uh, prime ministers who've vigorously supported action on climate change. We put in a meaningful carbon price. That got overthrown. Now we're going through a succession of uh, prime ministers at an increasing rate, mainly because of the climate change issue. That's the underlying thing that's destabilizing politics. But at the subnational level, we have some really positive signs. Uh, states like South Australia are already over 50% renewable. Our, our own little uh, Australian Capital Territory, which is sort of the equivalent of D.C. in, in the U.S., will be 100% renewable in, in about 18 months. And we've done that over about eight or nine years. So, and that's a city of about half a million. So you can transform really fast if you put your mind to it. And I think Canberra's crossed a tipping point where now, although there was a lot of angst about how much it would cost to get carbon out of our electricity system, now we want to get carbon out of our entire territory economy by 2045. And it's got widespread support, no problem from the Treasury and economists. So I think we've crossed a tipping point to realize we can actually do this. And it's actually going to benefit us uh, in other ways in addition to the uh, climate benefits. So I'm hoping that, that things like this, that these social tipping points can come in in time to, to help us get on the right pathway. It sounds like people and the local governments have just gone ahead well past what the retrograde national government is doing, and that offers some hope for the United States as well. Indeed. I think that's a good example, too, in the United States. And it's, there's probably a reason for that. I think the big vested interests that want to maintain the fossil fuel world operate at the big levels in, in governance, operate at the na nation-state levels, whereas people who actually f understand the risks and feel the impacts already today want to get on with solving it. And the best thing they can do now without uh, getting the, the national governments moving is to get moving at the local level. And that's happening around Australia, too. As we wrap up, is there anything else you would like to tell our listeners? All I would say is make one more point to your listeners. Often people, when I talk about this paper and other aspects of my work, they say, ah, oh, but, you know, give us hope. Can you please give us some hope? And my answer is, 
actually you make hope. People themselves make hope, and that's what we've done in Canberra. Uh, we've got a much better attitude toward this problem because we're actually going out and doing things and making a difference. So my, my response to people is you can do something, and the best thing you can do is, is get active on this, change your local politics, try to change your national politics. That'll generate hope. We've been speaking with Dr. Will Steffen, Emeritus Professor at the Australian National University and part of the Climate Council of Australia. He's the lead author of a new paper, Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene. It is available in full text for free, and you can find links to that, plus some quotes and comments, in my own show blog at ecoshock.org. Will Steffen, thank you so much for sharing your valuable time with our listeners. Thank you, Alex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. One of my climate heroes is Dr. Hans Joachim or John Schellenhuber. Early on, Schellenhuber dared to ask the question, what if we go beyond 4 degrees C of heating? There were two conferences on that. The first was at Oxford. I broadcast Shellen Huber's speech from the second held in Australia. You can find that program and my detailed notes on his speech in my show blog at ecoshock.org. It's still important. In his 2011 speech at the Four Degrees or More conference in Australia, Dr. Shellen Huber revealed something that always made me wonder. He said studies in physics show the temperature is unlikely to stay anywhere around 7 degrees C. Simple calculations about the wave patterns of matter suggest the temperature would either rest around 5 degrees or keep migrating up to 10 degrees hotter where there is another natural plateau. The later 2018 paper also talks about possible rusting points based on the potential energy system. It's deep stuff and Schellenhuber is one of the top physicists, so I believe him. If we push the planet into the track for hothouse Earth, it will be due to crossing planetary boundaries. These are the so-called tipping points, where large natural systems begin to release more greenhouse gases than we do, and more than the current climate system can tolerate. Here is my Radio EcoShock interview with Johan Rockstrom, the Swedish leader of Planetary Boundaries. A best of Radio EcoShock replay. There are limits to what humanity can do on this planet and still survive. Johan Rockstrom has led a team that mapped out those planetary boundaries. Rockstrom is the executive director of the Stockholm Resilience Center. He teaches at Stockholm University and holds many roles in the scientific community. We'll talk about his latest book, written with Matthias Klum, Big World, Small Planet. Johan Rockström, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, and a great honor to be with you. One boundary set by world governments in Paris was to avoid heating the planet 2 degrees C above the pre-industrial levels. Some scientists say 2 degrees of warming is already built in. We're heading into the danger zone. Do you agree or disagree? No, I I agree. You know, the planetary boundary science, which is the basis of the book, Big World, Small Planet, concludes exactly in line with what you're saying, that the climate planetary boundary, in fact, is even lower than 2 degrees Celsius. We put it at 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is 
the aim that the Paris Climate Agreement in the end really, really set out for, which means that it aligned itself with science. Now, the drama here is that we have already warmed the planet with an, an average temperature rise of one degree Celsius, but a lot of science indicates clearly that we are uh, very soon, if not already today, committed to almost one and a half degrees Celsius because of all the heat which is stored in the ocean and because of the cooling caused by air pollution, which is a paradox that actually air pollution, which uh, destroys the health of people, is actually helping us by cooling the planet by basically shedding away incoming solar radiation. So we are probably close to one and a half degrees Celsius and we're moving very quickly towards two degrees Celsius. So yes, there is a, a danger zone there. However, there is a lot of evidence on the plate today showing clearly that we can transition towards a decarbonized future faster than we have previously thought, thanks to the ability to scale economically attractive renewable energy technologies from photovoltaics to wind power to biomass to different forms of you know, hydro and, and even nuclear to some extent which can allow us to transition quickly. And what science also shows very clearly is if we want to settle at around one and a half to two degrees Celsius, meaning below two degrees Celsius, we will not only have to decarbonize and, and leave the fossil fuel era behind us within you know, 30, 40 years, we also need to transition into a phase in the second part of the century where we have negative emissions, meaning we take out more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere than we are emitting into the atmosphere. And this can be done by working both with nature, using biomass, for example, plants and trees that take up carbon dioxide and transform it into charcoal and plug it back into the soil, or through different kinds of geoengineering systems, which we call carbon capture and storage, where you back plug technologies in coal-fired plants, for example, to suck out carbon dioxide, concentrate it, and suck it back into the crust of the earth. So even though it's absolutely true that we are in a very dire situation and there's an urgency, there is increasing evidence that a transition into a world below 2 degrees Celsius, below the climate planetary boundary, is, is actually doable, even though the situation is, is challenging. Under a high emission scenario, if we don't make that, I have seen maps projecting wide bands of deserts around the subtropics in this century. You are known for in-depth research on water resources and how to farm with less. Can we cope with changes to agriculture under climate change? Yeah, this is a, a very important question. Now, and there are two parts uh, of answer. I mean, one is where you started off. You're absolutely right. We are following a pathway. If we continue business as usual, if we do not implement what we have now promised from heads of state of all the world's countries to do in Paris then yes, we would be first hitting right through the ceiling of the climate planetary boundary of staying under two degrees, and we would very likely take us to three, four degrees Celsius, which can be uh, you know, described in no other way than being a disastrous future for humanity from the drought-prone agricultural regions in the center of the U.S. all the way to the tropical, vulnerable countries across Africa and the low-lying island states in the Indian and Pacific Oceans that would have to be evacuated even. So yes, that would be a very dangerous scenario and the number one victim 
is everything that depends on fresh water, and among those is really food production as uh, the first victim. But on the other hand, we can see, as I mentioned earlier, the possibility of transitioning in line with the Paris Agreement to avoid those most dangerous outcomes, meaning that passing two degrees Celsius, it would still require clearly major investments in adaptation. Remember that the last time we had one degree Celsius warming and when the planet finally, finally stabilized itself after that disequilibrium caused by one degree warming, we had on average six meter sea level rise on Earth. So, you know, we're, we're very likely, even if we wouldn't reach that high level of, of change, to be forced to invest heavily in dealing with the rising frequency of droughts, rising frequency of heat waves, rising frequency of disease, and, and an irreversible increase in sea level rise. So, you know, however we twist and turn this, we will have to adapt to unavoidable change, but we have to avoid unmanageable change. Now, at a TED Talk, Johan, you told an audience that climate change may not actually be our greatest challenge. What did you mean by that? Yes, and that is uh, scientifically supported, even though I recognize how provocatively it can appear, because, of course, the global climate crisis is debated and, and at the center stage of our focus, and, of course, it is a major, major challenge. However, we are at the sixth mass extinction of species in the world. We are, therefore, as human beings, killing off everything from pollinators to large predators like tigers and cod and sharks at a pace equivalent with a global mass extinction. Among these six mass extinctions, by the way, is, for example, when we lost the dinosaurs some 65 million years ago due to an asteroid catastrophe. So we are in a, in a very, very dire situation with regards to losing biodiversity. Now, remember that losing species on this earth is not a moral issue just to protect everyone's right to exist as living beings. It is really our toolbox to allow ourselves to have a good well-being on this planet because we need biodiversity to, you know, capture carbon, clean water, have good uh, quality of air, and to produce food. So there's no other way than you know, maintaining nature to have a good future. Now, the dilemma is the following. These are two crises, biodiversity crisis, climate crisis. However, the climate crisis has a perfect substitution. We can follow the conventional economic theory to say, okay, we recognize that oil, coal, and natural gas is too dangerous, it's too costly, and therefore does not deliver. And moreover, we're reaching a situation with peak of cheap fossil fuel sources, such as oil, so we transition into a substitute and therefore can deliver modern energy supply through solar voltaics, wind, biomass, hydro, nuclear, and other innovations. This is what economic theory has always as, as the way we can move towards innovation and development. And we're seeing evidence that this can be done. So we actually have a solution, which moreover can deliver for human well-being. How is it on biodiversity? Well, you see, there's no substitute. You lose a species and it's gone forever. There's no regret period. You lose fresh water or you run out of fresh water, there's no alternative. So biodiversity and what we call the living nature, fresh water, land, biodiversity, has no substitution. There's only one way and one solution, which is to safeguard the natural capital we have. And that is much tougher because it requires that we understand the need to preserve what we have 
to allow our children and future generations to thrive on Earth. So that is why I'm saying that perhaps we might find in the end, paradoxically, that the climate challenge is the easier one because we actually have a substitutable, economically viable solution, uh, while biodiversity is a much more complex and spread and deeper and, and fatal outcome. Johan, what is the fourth industrial revolution and what could that mean? Yes, yeah, so this is both a great excitement, but also a concern if we, so to say, allow it to live on its own. The fourth industrial revolution is the notion, which is backed up by more and more evidence and coming not least from the great innovation powerhouses in the U.S., from Silicon Valley to MIT and then the great corporations you have in the U.S., showing that we are right at the verge, as we speak right now, starting a new exponential journey into the digital revolution going to scale in the world, nanotechnology, biotechnology, allowing us to truly be able to think of a world where we can achieve basically abundance for all in the world by taking a major step in terms of delivery of goods and services thanks to or, or because of technological advancements, and that this is going very, very fast. Now, that is good news. It allows us to move and take a major next step into a modern future in the 21st century. The challenge, though, is the following. We know, if you look into the past, that essentially all technological advancements have accelerated our journey towards unsustainable development. It has sped up our ability to undermine resources and ecosystems and climate on Earth. So if an industrial revolution is allowed to occur on its own, it could actually accelerate our journey towards hitting these planetary boundaries even more severely. So our hypothesis in the big world, small planet, what we're suggesting is that a fourth industrial revolution has to be capped by planetary boundaries. And perhaps surprising to many is that our very deep conviction is that that would not halt the Industrial Revolution. It would rather deepen it even further. You know, if you say, oh, it's not enough to be really, really superbly innovative when it comes to the next generation of vehicles or next generation of aviation or next generation of smartphones, they also have to now be entirely sustainable, possible to recycle and occur within a safe operating space. I believe that that would deepen the innovation even further and make us even smarter. So, there's no contradiction between planetary boundaries and the fourth industrial revolution, but it's an exciting but also very challenging moment. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest, the Swedish scientist Johan Rockstrom. In your book, Johan, you say we can trigger a new wave of sustainable technological inventions to solve our ecological crisis. I just talked with another well-known Swede, Alf Hornborg. Alf says there is no technical solution to the problems of technology. We need social and ideological change instead. What are your thoughts? Yes, and I know Alf Hornborg very well, and uh, he raises a very important issue. And I'm so glad you, you bring this forward because it's absolutely true. There's no convincing analysis to show that technological breakthroughs alone can take us towards a sustainable and equitable future with 10 billion co-citizens when we're a big world on a small planet. In fact, the pace by which we need to uh, decarbonize our climate system, 
share the remaining rare earth metals, produce more than 50% food to feed humanity on existing land because we cannot expand into virgin ecosystems anymore. We cannot empty the oceans from more wild fish because we're running out of fish. These insights force us to recognize that technology can take us a certain part of the way, but we also need behavioral change. And that requires value change and particularly equity change. I mean, it's, it's equally dramatic that we are a rich minority, some 1.5 billion of 7.2 billion people who has caused the bulk of the global environmental risks on planet Earth. And it's equally you know, acute to recognize that that minority is, is equivalent to the inequity challenge we're facing with you know, a small percentage of the world's population owning more capital than 50% of the poorest in the world. So it's absolutely true that we have to combine a fourth industrial revolution not only with a deep sustainability mind shift, but also with a deep equity and values mind shift, and that all of this will require from us all uh, a sense of behavioral change and lifestyle change, which has to be founded on the recognition that we have to share the remaining ecological space on Earth. But I really want to emphasize that that ethical dimension and this lifestyle change, there's no evidence to suggest that that's a sacrifice, that this is you know, moving backwards, it's rather moving forward into the future. And I really want to remind ourselves that the real sacrifice, the time we would really have to give up on our lifestyles, is by continuing business as usual. Because business as usual is what all science shows will take us across tipping points, which would undermine our ability to have good lives. And therefore, the most dire sacrifice to our lifestyles is by continuing as usual, a sustainable future is, is sort of say the only pathway that could plausibly give us the room to allow ourselves to have a good future. So, you know, you have to combine these issues, but recognizing that a modern thriving future is today basically prerequisited by a sustainable framework. Well, given our situation, what are the most urgent problems we need to tackle first? Well, our conclusion in the Big World Small Planet is that we have two major, let's say, urgent transformations we need to accomplish. And the first one is not surprisingly to bend the curve of emission of greenhouse gases and move rapidly towards a decarbonization of our entire world economy, which means leaving fossil fuels behind us. The number one issue is to halt all use of coal and coal fire plants, deregulate or, or stop using oil and natural gas and move into renewable energy technologies. That is de facto an urgent challenge we face. And the second one is to transition into sustainable food production in the world, because it may surprise you that agriculture is the single largest cause behind us threatening planetary boundaries. Food production is the single world largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Agriculture is the single world's largest consumer of fresh water, the single world largest polluter of our waterways due to too much nitrogen, phosphorus, and chemicals, and the single largest loss of biodiversity. So sustainable food means a healthy planet. And moreover, which is quite interesting, is that sustainable food can also unlock many of the strategies towards more healthy diets. So I would say that the two most urgent challenges is to move towards a renewable energy future and a sustainable food future. And that would take us a long way in terms of 
a future within planetary boundaries. And there is a program that you're involved in called Future Earth. Can you tell us about that, please? Yes. You see, the planetary boundary framework, which then lands scientifically at the conclusion that we now need to define the Earth system processes that regulates the stability and resilience of the Earth system and that we have to quantify biophysical boundaries within which we can have a safe future on a stable planet. All that evidence arises from 30 years of extraordinary advancement in global change research, what we call Earth system science, which simply put is the science of understanding how the Earth operates and also how we humans interact with Earth. Now, that science started in the 1970s and has progressed in a number of large international programs from the World Climate Research Program to something called the International Human Dimensions Program and the International Geosphere Biosphere Program, looking at land and climate and atmosphere and interactions with the world economy. Now, some five years ago, the recognition was that now we have so much evidence that we're facing this urgent need to transform the world towards a global sustainable future that this enormous advancement in earth system science needs to take a next step, needs to basically integrate social natural sciences and needs to focus more on science exploring pathways for a sustainable future. And after a long consultation among scientists across the world, with stakeholders from business and policy and civil society, the result is Future Earth. So Future Earth is a step up of the global sustainability science community from climate change to biodiversity to economics to start and, and really address the integrated challenges and opportunities facing humanity to transition into a global sustainable future. And Future Earth has, has just started. It has, uh, interestingly, a distributed headquarters where the U.S. is, is one of the uh, hubs for the global leadership based in, in Colorado with a number of top, top scientists across the U.S., uh, one hub in, in Sweden, one in Canada, one in Japan, one in France. And uh, Future Earth has the objective of being, you know, a science platform for collaborative research, searching solutions for humanity's transition towards a, a stable and resilient future. For your book, Big World, Small Planet, you didn't team up with another scientist, but with a fairly famous photographer, you started talking about the role of beauty. What has beauty got to do with science and policy? (laughs) Yes, this might be surprising that a scientific conclusion after 30 years of Earth system science, combining, you know, linking climate science to complex research on uh, ocean acidification, lands at a conclusion that a key message to humanity is that if we can safeguard the remaining beauty on Earth, we stand a very good chance of a prosperous future. And and that might be surprising, but, you know, there's something fundamental here, and it is about the collision between emotions and and the rational, between brain and heart, represented in the Big World Small Planet with the science that we summarize and with the photography that that Matthias is, is displaying, But our conclusion is serious, which is that we live in a world of rising cultural and religious and political turbulence. And and we we focus so much of our efforts on everything that is so different between the the Muslim world and the Christian world and the North and the South, etc., and then all the divides we have. 
But our hypothesis is that we have a universal value. We have a universal value across every culture, every nation, every corner of this planet, which is that every individual has a relationship to his or her nature at home. And that this nature is what we define as beauty. And that if we can safeguard the beauty we know, and if we all can do that, we stand a good chance of that adding up towards safeguarding the beauty of the planet. So if you look out of your window, what you really care for in nature, be it your closest tree or a little meadow or, as I have, just a little rocky spots on the coast of the Baltic Sea outside of the island where I live, these are fundamental, valuable, not to say prerequisites, for us to have a good planet that can continue to deliver human well-being. So the point is that, you know, coming back to this fundamental core of, of sustaining the beauty can be a key part of our mind shift towards a sustainable, innovative transformation in the future. I have to agree. It's beauty that powers me and keeps me going even in difficult times. From Stockholm, we've been speaking with Johan Rockström, one of the world's preeminent natural scientists, I think I can say. Johan is co-author of the book Big World, Small Planet. He's the executive director of the Stockholm Resilience Center and teaches at Stockholm University. You can find links to his work in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Johan, thank you so much for talking with us on Radio Ecoshock. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to this very important program. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org. If we can't solve the climate threat, human civilization will not survive. Billions will die. Eventually, all large mammals, including humans, will not be able to survive a wrenching heat surge in the hothouse world. This is live-or-die stuff. We must all find out what the danger is and what we need to do to stabilize our home planet. I'm Alex Smith. Follow up in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. Newspapers flying by.